The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. This morning we'll be reading from 1 Peter 3, 8-17. If you'd like to follow along, it's on page 954 in your Bible in front of you. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for this is what you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Natalie. Let's pray this morning. Uh, Father, we are gathered around this text of Scripture today because we want to hear from you. And we want to hear from you, Lord, because we want to know you more and love you more and be more conformed to your image. So please, Lord, bless our efforts and glorify your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, several weeks ago, my family and I went to the Carnegie Science Center and saw, among other things, their new exhibit on Mars. And uh, one of the things I found most interesting about that exhibit and about Mars is just how hostile the climate there is to human beings. Uh, one of the main reasons for this is that there's only a very thin atmosphere around Mars, and it's comprised of all the wrong gases. This means, first of all, that there's virtually no oxygen on Mars, and that uh, basically the atmospheric pressure is so low that if we were to go there without the proper equipment, our eardrums would immediately rupture, and the, the water within our bodies would start to boil, <laughs> which doesn't sound like a particularly enjoyable experience. Uh, the thin atmosphere also results in temperatures on Mars being quite uh, frigid, interestingly enough, 
uh, dipping as low as negative 285 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm not sure how that interacts with the, the water boiling in our bodies. I guess it's something to do with pressure. Uh, and it also allows uh, a lot of radiation coming from the sun to reach the surface of Mars, uh, radiation that would prove lethal to us over the course of a few months. Now, of course, there's no shortage of ideas about how humans might adapt to these hostile conditions. For example, any future human settlements on Mars would almost certainly have to be located underground in some type of artificial environment that would shield us from many of these dangers, but even that presents us with no shortage of challenges. And so, I don't know about you, but I, for one, am very happy right here on Earth. And yet, that's not to say that we don't face any challenges on Earth, as we can clearly see from our main passage here in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 17, the next passage we come to as we're working our way through Peter, there are plenty of challenges that we face, especially as Christians, living in the midst of a culture that's increasingly non-Christian and even, in some cases, hostile toward Christians. So just like Mars is a physically hostile environment, those of us who are Christians may at times find ourselves in a socially hostile environment. And in fact, as our country continues its current course and becomes increasingly secular, that seems to be something we're having to deal with more and more. And that can be pretty difficult. So how can we not only survive, but even thrive in the midst of this social hostility? And how can we relate to this hostile culture and respond to the culture in a way that glorifies God? Well, in this passage, Peter tells us how we can do that. According to Peter, God calls Christians living in the midst of a hostile culture to bless those who mistreat them and be prepared for gospel opportunities. That's the main idea. God calls Christians living in the midst of a hostile culture to bless those who mistreat them and be prepared for gospel opportunities. And uh, we'll spend uh, the rest of our time this morning looking at those two things. So first, let's look at what Peter says about blessing those who mistreat us. He begins in verse 6, or verse 8, rather. Finally, all of you have unity of mind sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. In other words, everything begins with us cultivating the right attitude. Now, even though the instructions in this particular verse seem to be oriented mainly toward the way Christians should relate to other Christians, they still serve as a good foundation for what Peter's about to say about how Christians should relate to non-Christians. Peter then says in verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So we should expect at times to be on the receiving end of both evil and reviling. 
Evil is a very general word that would include pretty much any way in which someone wrongs us or mistreats us, while reviling is more specific and refers to verbal abuse and the scornful words that others might direct toward us. These things shouldn't come as any surprise to us. Uh, After all, Jesus himself also tells us to expect these things. He says to his disciples in John 15, 18 through 20, that just as people hated and persecuted him, we should expect them likewise to hate and persecute us. And so in Peter's words, we will at times be on the receiving end of evil and reviling. And of course, our natural inclination, whenever that happens, is to treat them, you know, the people doing this to us, the way they have treated us. It's almost like a a game of tennis, right? Whenever someone hits the tennis ball over the net into our part of the court, our natural response is to hit it right back over the net into their part of the court, and preferably, if we're able to, to hit it back even harder than they originally hit hit it toward us. And so if they mock us, we want to mock them back and better. (laughs) If they uh, troll us online, you know, we want to troll them back. Whatever they do against us, we want to do the same back to them. And yet, that's not at all the example that Jesus left for us, is it? In fact, Peter just reminded us in the previous chapter that Jesus did the exact opposite. You may remember if you were here in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23, we read, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, right, same word, reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when Peter tells us in our main passage not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, he's simply telling us to follow the example of Jesus that he just reminded us of back in the previous chapter. And friends, this is one of those things that sounds, I guess, easy enough until you're actually in a situation where you have to do it. Uh, For example, not too long ago, I discovered that uh, someone, uh, not someone who's in any way involved in our church or anything like that, but just someone had told a lie about me. And uh, it wasn't a particularly nasty lie or, or anything like that, but it was still a straight up lie. And they knew it was a lie. And I have to admit that for several moments, I kind of forgot about what uh, Jesus and, and Peter tell us to do. And I became rather indignant, at least in my heart, that someone would have the audacity to lie about me. Now, thankfully, the Holy Spirit did uh, restrain me from responding in any outwardly sinful way in which I might have uh, otherwise done and helped me move past the situation. But I'll tell you what, in the heat of the moment, it wasn't easy. And it never is. 
Yet that's what we're called to do. And then as we continue on in verse 9, Peter goes a step beyond what he said at the beginning of the verse and tells us not just to avoid uh, repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but to actually bless those who mistreat us. So don't just avoid doing something bad to them. Show them the extent to which God's changed your heart by actually doing something good to them. Bless them, Peter says. Think about what that might look like. How might we bless those who mistreat us? Let me very briefly suggest five ways. Five ways we can bless those who mistreat us. First, let's pray for them. Pray God's general blessing on them and their lives and their families. And certainly if they're not yet a Christian, pray that God would bring them to saving faith in Jesus. Second, speak to them in a kind and respectful manner. Don't be cutting or sarcastic or condescending, but instead speak to them in a way that will be a blessing to them. Third, speak well of them to others. Now, of course, there may very well be some aspects of their character that you're not honestly able to speak well of, but try your best to find ways to publicly acknowledge and affirm whatever areas in which they do display virtue. And certainly, at the very least, if you can't find anything um, that, that you could commend, certainly avoid spreading any gossip about them. Then fourth, uh, look for opportunities to serve them through various acts of kindness. These might include offering practical help with something they need help with, or even financial assistance if that's a need. And fifth, forgive whatever wrongs they've committed against you. After all, God has forgiven you, has he not? And so certainly you should be able to forgive other people. And so these are just a few practical ideas. I'm sure you could come up with more, but just a few examples of how we might follow Peter's uh, instruction here in verse 9 and bless those who mistreat us. And of course, Peter isn't alone in telling us to do this. You can ultimately trace this pattern of thinking back to Jesus, who said to his disciples in Luke 6, 27 and 28, but I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless, there that word is again, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Notice how in this, these verses, in addition to telling us to display various external behaviors, including blessing those who curse us, Jesus tells us to do something that's even more radical. He instructs us not only to do various good things to those who wrong us, but to do those good things as an overflow of genuine love in our hearts. Love your enemies, Jesus says. You know, so often we might treat those who wrong us in a cordial and polite way on the outside, but be seething with anger on the inside. Bitterness, resentment. I know, what you know, I know you know what I'm talking about, right? I, uh, I'm in the same boat. I've been there. 
But that's exactly the wrong attitude to have. Jesus cares not only about us exhibiting the right external behavior toward people, specifically those who mistreat us, but also about us having genuine love in our heart toward them. And that might very well be the most difficult thing of all. In fact, it's so difficult, we, I'll just say we can't have that love apart from God's grace and apart from the Holy Spirit working within our hearts and filling our hearts with that kind of love. It's a love that's distinctly supernatural. In addition, as we seek to cultivate this love within our hearts, one thing I've often found helpful is to remind myself that apart from the grace of God, I myself would be just as bad, if not worse, than the person who mistreated me. Whatever they've done to me, I'd be doing even worse, apart from God's grace. And reminding myself of that softens my heart toward them and often enables me not to respond to them as I might otherwise respond, but rather to exhibit the love of Christ. And friends, when we respond to those who mistreat us with the love of Christ, that has a way of getting people's attention and serving as a powerful gospel witness. Because, like, who else does that? Like, where else in our society can you look and see people behaving in that kind of a way. Like, I'm not sure I've ever seen anyone do that who's not a Christian, and I doubt that many people even have a mental category for that. And so when we as Christians demonstrate that kind of love, a Christ-like love, even toward those who mistreat us, it is one of the most powerful things we could possibly do to get people's attention and open doors for the gospel. In return to our main passage, after Peter tells us to bless those who mistreat us, he shares with us something else that should motivate us to do this. He says in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, and here it is, that you may obtain a blessing. So the result of us blessing those who mistreat us is that we ourselves will obtain a blessing from God. Peter then supports this idea with a citation from Psalm 34. The citation is given in our main text in verses 10 through 12, where Peter writes, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter then reinforces this idea even more in verses 13 and 14. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, here it is again, you will be blessed. Now Peter doesn't explain exactly how will be blessed, but I think we can assume it involves blessing both in this life in various ways and in eternity. 
Then as we continue moving forward in the passage, we see that Peter discusses not only blessing those who mistreat us, but also, number two, being prepared for gospel opportunities. Being prepared for gospel opportunities. Look at the second half of verse 14 through verse 17. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So the first thing Peter instructs his readers to do here is to avoid living in fear of those who mistreat them. He writes in verse 14, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Whenever someone's capable of harming us or even just making our lives difficult, our natural tendency is to fear them to at least some degree. In fact, even just in our lives in general, we often function in what the Bible calls, in several different places, the fear of man. That is to say, we often care way too much, not just about what others might do to us, but even of what they might think of us and how they might view us. And a lot of times we don't even realize just how pervasive this mentality of the fear of man is in our lives. Uh, You might compare it to a major city that has a smog problem. You know, whenever you're maybe standing in the downtown area of that city, everything looks fine. The the air looks looks great. Like you can look up and see a, a clear blue sky. But then if you drive a little ways out of the city and you look back at the city skyline, you can see that the downtown area is actually surrounded by a bubble of smog. Last year, our family went to New York City, and that was the first thing that stood out to me about the New York City skyline. Like, it is surrounded by smog. But then when we got to Manhattan, you know, you look around and everything looks normal because you're just, you're surrounded by it. In a similar manner, many of us are so surrounded by and immersed in the fear of man that we don't even realize just how pervasive it is in our lives. So, for example, just just take a moment and, and think about different aspects of your life. Think about the clothes you wear, you know, the name brands, or the vehicle you drive. Or the professional achievements you pursue. Or the way you engage in conversations. The kinds of things you say about yourself when you're introducing yourself. The the pictures that you post on social media. How much of that is influenced or even driven by a concern for what other people think about you? How much of your life is spent obsessing about what other people think and in one way or another trying to impress people? Like I said, a lot of times we do it so much we don't even realize we're doing it. 
we function in the fear of man. As a result, we often end up being controlled and even enslaved by the opinions of others. Like they essentially become our masters to whatever extent we fear them and allow their view of us to drive our lives. In addition, there's also a spiritual dynamic to this as well that's actually pretty central to it all. When people become big, God becomes small, at least from our perspective. It's kind of like we're looking into a funhouse mirror or something. God is, or people are exaggerated to become inordinately big, well, therefore God is proportionately reduced to become inordinately small. It's in this way that the fear of man becomes an idol, something that we worship above God, right? It leads us to become so wrapped up in what will impress other people and, and what will be pleasing to them that we barely, in that moment at least, we barely give a second thought to living in a way that pleases God. So what's the answer then? How can we escape from this fear of man? Well, according to the Bible, the way to escape the fear of man is to cultivate the fear of God. Or we might say a proper regard and reverence for God. Uh, we can actually see this pattern in numerous places in Scripture, but one of them being right here in 1 Peter. Notice, right after Peter instructs his readers in verse 14, "...have no fear of them, nor be troubled." He writes in verse 15, but in your hearts, so the word but, right? There's an alternative here. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, cultivate a proper regard for Christ as the only one who's holy and therefore worthy of worship. Stop worshiping other people as if their opinions of you had any lasting significance and instead Direct your worship toward Christ. And not just to Christ, but notice Peter says, to Christ the Lord. Emphasizing the lordship of Christ over everyone and everything. So according to Peter, the solution of being, uh, to being dominated, even enslaved by the fear of man, is to honor Christ the Lord as holy. See, it's when we begin to cultivate the fear of God in that way that all other fears, including the fear of man, begin to evaporate. We might say that the fear of God displaces all other fears. Kind of like if you were to take a large rock and drop it into a bucket that's filled to the brim with water. If that bucket is filled to the brim, well then it's not able to hold the water it's currently holding and something else. And so when the rock goes in, water spills out. The rock displaces some of the water. And uh, the bigger the rock, of course, the more water it displaces. Similarly, the fear of God displaces all other fears in our lives. And by the way, unlike the fear of man and other earthly fears, the fear of God actually allows us to flourish 
rather than causing us to be enslaved. It lifts us up rather than tearing us down. It leads us to a life that's full and abundant and just radiant with the joy of closeness to God. So that's one way to think about it. The fear of God displacing all other fears. We might also think about it like this. Anyone who's walked among the redwoods of California isn't going to be very impressed by the small sapling in someone's backyard. Also, anyone who's been to the Alps isn't going to be very impressed by you know, the various hills that we have here around Pittsburgh. In both cases, the person has seen things that are so stunning and magnificent that they're just not very affected by smaller things, such as saplings or hills. Likewise, dear friends, the more time we spend in the presence of a holy God, and the more we behold his glory and become enamored by him and cultivate a proper regard for God, the less regard we have for the opinions of others and the less we care about impressing them. And as we continue working through verse 15, we see that this mentality has the effect of preparing us for gospel opportunities. Right? That's where Peter's line of thinking leads us. Remember, Peter told us in verse 14 not to be controlled by the fear of other people. He then told us the solution to that in the first part of verse 15, which is honoring Christ the Lord as holy. And now in the second part of verse 15, he talks about how this enables us to be prepared for gospel opportunities. He says we're supposed to honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Many Christians point to this verse as a key proof text that demonstrates the need for Christian apologetics or uh, rational arguments defending the Christian faith. And uh, even though I, I believe there is certainly a need for Christian apologetics and, and a place for, for such uh, arguments and, and things like that, it seems that the primary thrust of this particular verse, if you take into account the context and Peter's flow of thought, isn't the need for apologetics, but rather the need for us to be delivered from the fear of man. So that in that sense, we can be prepared to, well, essentially share the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. We are to make a defense to those who inquire about the hope within us in the sense of giving an explanation for how we can have such hope, even in the midst of such suffering. This implies, of course, that we actually do exhibit hope in the midst of our suffering. So to summarize verse 15, Peter's assuming that we're exhibiting hope in the midst of suffering to such a degree that people will at times ask us about the hope that's in us. And when they do that, we're called to be sufficiently free from the fear of man that we're prepared to answer their questions directly without fearing what they might think or how they might respond. 
We're to be ready to freely make it known that it's because of Jesus that we have the hope we have. That's the sense in which we're supposed to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. So for those who are already Christians, just think about your life for a moment. Are you prepared to take advantage of the gospel opportunities God gives you and is continually giving you? Are you prepared to make known to people the reason for the hope that's in you? Or are you shying away from those opportunities because you're so concerned about what people might think of you or how they might how your relationship with someone might be affected if you try to talk about Jesus with them. And I think a lot of us might need to go home and maybe spend some time reflecting and perhaps repenting of the fear of man. Because a lot of times when we're hesitant to uh, share the gospel with someone, you know what, we might come up with different reasons in our mind, different explanations, but a lot of times that's all it is. It's the fear of man. That's hindering us. And yet even as we seek to be bold gospel witnesses, Peter does give us one caution at the end of verse 15. He says that as we make a defense and give an explanation for the hope within us, that we should always do so with gentleness and respect. In giving this reminder, Peter's returning to Uh, the idea he emphasized earlier in the passage of blessing those who mistreat us. Even though people might mock our beliefs and uh, at times be quite harsh and disrespectful in arguing against our beliefs, we have to resist the temptation to sink down to their level and instead respond to them with gentleness and respect. And by responding in that way, we will discover, I think, quite often that the gentle and respectful manner in which we conduct ourselves is far more persuasive than any words spoken in a spirit of harshness could ever be. You know, we might not, uh, some of us, myself included, might not have like a brilliant intellect where we just are, you know, intellectually outmatching anyone that we ever enter into a dialogue with. We might not have the brilliant intellect or razor-sharp mind or captivating charisma, but here's the encouraging thing. If we'll just exhibit a spirit of love toward our opponents, that often will prove to be the persuasive thing. Certainly to people on the sidelines, as it were, who are watching us, and perhaps even to our opponents themselves. Of course, that's no reason to, uh, it's no excuse for being lazy or sloppy in our thinking, but hopefully it's an encouragement. And I think that's part of what Peter means, that, that persuasiveness. In verse 16, when he talks about those who revile your good behavior in Christ being put to shame, their, their own character, the manner in which they carry themselves disqualifies them in the eyes of other people. And uh, by the way, one of the most important areas where we could remember this is on social media. Christians probably fail to demonstrate 
gentleness and respect much more often on social media than they do in personal face-to-face conversations with people. And because when you can't actually see your opponent, and instead they're just a, a bunch of pixels on a screen, it's very easy to dehumanize them and to say things to them and about them that, let's be honest, you would never say if you were actually looking them uh, in the eye. So if you really want to be revolutionary in our current culture, you'll be well on your way toward that simply by demonstrating gentleness and respect, especially in all of your online interactions. And as we think about all we've discussed this morning, really related to interacting with those who mistreat us and who mock us and who uh, we might say, spew venom on us on occasion in various ways, it might seem exceedingly difficult to respond to them in the way Peter tells us to. Peter's instructions are easy enough to understand and yet quite challenging to live out. In fact, they're impossible, as I mentioned before, to live out in our own strength. But... That's precisely where Jesus comes in. We've already seen from 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24, that when Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. That when he suffered, he did not threaten. Instead, we're told he voluntarily bore our sins in his body on the cross. So when people wronged Jesus, he didn't wrong them back. He didn't retaliate or seek revenge. Instead, what did he do? Well, actually, if you get right down to it, in Luke 23, 34, he actually prayed for his enemies from the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus loved the very people who were crucifying him and demonstrated that love by praying for their forgiveness even as he hung there on that cross. So if you want an example of how to relate to a hostile culture and interact with those who mistreat us, just look at Jesus. The way he acted toward people who were mistreating him in the worst possible way. And of course, Jesus demonstrated love not only in what he spoke from the cross, but even more, and what he actually did on the cross, willingly offering himself as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. Essentially, Jesus took on himself the judgment that we deserved for our rebellion against God. Normally, of course, we'd have to face that judgment in hell. But Jesus suffered all of it in our place on the cross. He was then raised from the dead so that he now stands ready to forgive us, to to give us eternal life as we put our trust in him. That involves turning away from our life of sinful rebellion against God and putting our confidence exclusively in Jesus. Like not Jesus plus our moral efforts or Jesus plus our religious observances, but exclusively in Jesus 
to make us right with God once again.